0: Father, we come to you, needy and asking for help. We ask that you, by your spirit, would be among us and give our our minds the ability to focus on your word, that you would convict our hearts of ways that we need to change. And I thank you for Jesus, who's come to save us, and pray that our hearts would be stirred to love him more this morning. And uh, finally, I pray that you'd be with my mouth and the words that I say. May they be helpful. May they be pleasing in your sight. I need your help, Lord. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. <clears throat> the Apostle John, one of the leaders of the early church, he once wrote in a letter to a church, 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, he says, But you know... That he, Jesus, appeared that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sins. Did you catch that, that John said? He appeared. Jesus appeared. Why did he appear? That he might take away our sins. A sinless man came to take away the sins of sinners. And so what this means is that if we're going to understand why Jesus came, we have to know what sin is. And if we're going to understand how Jesus takes away our sins, then we need to know, you know what Jesus did to do that. How, if I need my sins taken away, how did Jesus do that? So, this is going to be the focus of our sermon this morning, our Advent sermon. Three weeks ago, I explained that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Fully man, because what we're going to look at today is only a man can pay for the sins of men. Fully God, because only God can save. And then, two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Jesus really was a man. We looked at all kinds of things, nine things in particular that shows he he ate like us, he drank like us, he slept, he got tired, he um, spoke our language, he had a human body, he was able to die and he did die for us. So we looked at that um, two weeks ago. Last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus wasn't Superman. He was a man, So how did he raise dead people? How did he walk on water? How did he calm storms? How did he feed thousands with bread and fish? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God that rested upon him as the prophets had said. Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 61, the Spirit of God would be on the Messiah and empower him for his ministry. And that's what we saw. Jesus lived the Spirit-empowered life just as we can live as well as his followers And we're called to live. And so today now, we're going to look at the very heart of why he came. Picture Jesus. I I gave the kids a picture to color downstairs. Their lesson was our lesson in miniature. (laughs) They colored a picture with a Christmas tree on it. So Christmas, what's the meaning of Christmas? And it had a manger and a cross. The baby Jesus came to be born to die, to die for our sins. So, next time you see a major scene, remember there's a shadow of a cross over that. Why did God come as a man, as a true human, filled with the Spirit, as we've been talking about the past three weeks? Simply put, He came to deal with our sins your sins, and my sins. He came to take them away, which means that you and I have something called sin, and that it's not okay, and that it needs to be dealt with. So if you're sitting here this morning and you don't really understand what sin is, or you think you might have an idea, but you'd like to hear more about it. Or if you don't feel like you really have sin, you look at your life and you're like, man, I, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I'm, I'm glad you came. And I, I really pray that this message would be a turning point in your life, that you would understand why Jesus came. See, if we remove the the concept of sin from the coming of Jesus. Christmas is really reduced to just a bunch of sentimental religious—I don't know—hooey. You know, just there's why God coming as a baby. Like, what's what's the point? If we don't understand sin, Jesus might as well be Santa Claus with a message of be good for goodness' sake. Be nice to people, because Jesus was. That's not why Jesus came. If you truly understand what sin is. And if you believe that your life is full of it, then Christmas is the best news that you could ever hear. It's more than amazing. God's son came to take away your sin. So that's at the heart of the gospel and it's a it's our message this morning. Now, I'm not we're going to be focusing on a passage of scripture, one verse in Ephesians. But before we read that verse, I want to um, lay out a road map um, <clears throat> I want to start off before I read that verse and lay out a roadmap for the rest of the message. I'm going to start off with a working definition of, of sin. In the conclusion of the sermon, we'll kind of circle back around and talk about specific sins a little more. But for now I just want to summarize this. Sin It's rebellion against God. Sin is rebellion against God. Now Someone might say, "Well, sin is breaking rules." It's true, um, sin is breaking rules. But ultimately, when you break someone's rules, and that position, that person is in the position of authority over you, then in that moment, you're rebelling against that person. When my kids disobey, they're rebelling against my authority. When they break rules, when we break rules, we're rebelling. We're rejecting authority, and in rejecting authority, we're rejecting that person who gave the rules. So when we sin, we are rejecting and ignoring God in the world that he created, not being or doing what he requires in his commands and law. That's from our kids' catechism. Sin is rejecting and ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he commands. When we sin... It's very personal when we disobey God. We're we're saying, God, I know you say not this way, but right now, this way feels good, and so I'm going to do it, no matter what you say. That's what sin is, and the Bible is very clear that every single one of us is a sinner. No matter how we feel about the matter, God doesn't ask our opinion. Okay? He doesn't ask our permission to call us sinners. He says, you are all rebels. If you ever disobeyed God even once, you're a sinner. And in the Bible, human sin earns a response from God. The response is death. It's our punishment. In the beginning of the Bible story, God told Adam and Eve that the punishment for their disobedience would be death. The Apostle Paul summarizes God's warning in Romans 6, verse 23. He says, the wages of sin is death. And Why? I've used this illustration many times. If you climb up a tree and climb out on a limb, that limb is supporting you, right? It's, it's keeping you alive. If you cut off that limb, you will fall to the ground. You, it's the same way, way with God's words. God's word gives us life he spoke us into existence. If you break the words that give you life, what happens? You die. God's words don't just give us life. They're meant to govern our lives in the way that he commands. And so sin is rebellion against him and it deserves death. Now, for the most part, I think we all have no problem thinking that some people deserve punishment and separation from God. Perhaps you think about Adolf Hitler or a pedophile or a rapist or a school shooter or people that do just terrible things and you you long to know will they be punished? I mean Hitler took his own life, right? How's that punishment for killing six million Jews and ruining the lives of millions and millions of other people? Sometimes something someone does is so terrible that even the death sentence seems puny, small. You wish you could punish them forever beyond the grave because of how bad what they did was. And you see them sitting on the electric chair with a smirk on their face, and you realize how weak our ability to punish someone is. In those moments, believe me, the justice of God is very comforting. Think about, though, how many millions of people don't end up on the chair. They're dying each year with horrific sins on their consciences, sins that were never figured out, never paid for, that nobody ever knew. Rapists whose victims live on in silent shame long after they've died. Murderers whose victims never got justice. Yes, it's it's really easy, I think, to wish that God would punish some sin with death beyond the grave. But even in our day and age but especially in our day and age, I think it's very unpopular to think that all sin deserves to be punished beyond the grave. Sins like lust, our culture loves to just smirk at. Pride. Oh, isn't it good to be full of yourself? You're number one. Anger. Out of control anger. Well, they made me do it. We love to justify. Greed. It's everywhere. More, more, more. I need more. Adultery. We laugh at unfaithfulness. Deceit. Has ever has ever a culture been so fond of lying? You know, Brian talks about you know the kids in school I and mean, we have constant lying. It's folks we tell so many lies we don't even know the difference between w- when we're telling the truth and when we're telling a lie. And we tend to have a sliding scale. With all of these sins and so many more, especially if we find them in ourselves, and yet the fact remains, we all have the sense that if you do something wrong, you should pay for it. Especially if you do something wrong to me or to my friends. All right. So hear me here. We, while we, while we may give some sins a pass in a in our culture, God does not. Well, I know He did a lot of bad things, but he also did a lot of good things. Well, God takes all sin seriously because all rebellion is rebellion in his eyes. No matter how small it may seem, it's against the greatest being in the universe, the one who spoke everything we see into existence. And so rejection of him is rejection of him, regardless of the form it takes. And so the Bible says that the problem with the world, at its core, what's wrong with the world? Rebellion against God. This world is not the way he designed it to be. Humans have gone their own way. We have rebelled against the Lord. And we cannot get away from the fact that we are sinners to our core. Try to stop sinning. Just not gonna, I'm not going to disobey God anymore. How long does that last? Our hearts are broken. We are slaves to sin apart from the the grace of God. The Bible even says we're spiritually dead apart from God's help. Stuck. We're unable to have a close relationship with God to escape sin and its consequences. And so we all desperately need God to do something about our sin whether we realize it or not, we need to be saved. We need to be released from sin's condemnation and freed from its power. And the Bible's word for this rescue, one of the words the Bible uses, is redeemed or redemption. So this morning, I'm going to read this verse, these two verses for us, from Ephesians 1. So if you have your Bibles, um, Galatians, Ephesians, okay, Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 7 to 8. I'm going to read these verses and we'll talk about three things. We're going to talk about our need for redemption from sin. Second, we're going to talk about the way of redemption that God provides, which is the blood of Jesus. And third, we're going to talk about the forgiveness we find as Christians through Christ's blood. And so by the end of this morning, uh, my, my prayer is that you will not just understand with your heads, but feel in your hearts the necessity of the cross of Jesus and that you will remember the little babe born in Bethlehem that we sing about, the little Lord Jesus, asleep on the hay, he paid for your sins. And that's the best news you could ever hear. So, Ephesians 1, 7 to 8. In him, Paul's talking about Jesus, verse 7, we have redemption. How? Through his blood. And then he summarizes it. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That's free love. Free love from God, his grace, that he lavished on us. Not just a little bit. Dumped it all out by giving us Jesus. The love of God gives us redemption the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. So, first, the need for redemption. That's the first point today. Now, I think that as humans, we are hardwired, I think God put this in us, to know that we need redemption if someone thinks that we did something wrong, or even if we think or feel that we ourselves did something wrong. And so, we, I'll, I'll, I'll unpack what I mean in a minute, okay? We, we usually do one of two things to try to redeem ourselves, in the eyes of ourselves or in the eyes of others. First, we'll usually go this route. We'll try to provide justification for what we did. How can I redeem myself? I justify myself. We make excuses. Of course, we don't call them excuses. We call them reasons, if you ever talk to somebody in prison, and I have a few times, you will hear a constant stream of reasons of why they are there. And most, many, many times, these reasons are because the system is at fault. All right? It's a, a victim mentality. I'm not saying this is universal, but it, quite often, and you know what? Sometimes there is. Brokenness in our prison systems and our justice system. But this victim mentality is very strong. If they admit wrong, yeah, I was wrong, but it's the way I was raised. It's somebody else. It's it's someone else's fault. They justify. Their name needs redemption, needs to be rescued. So how do they do it? Well, they justify somehow. By pointing the blame, passing the blame, explaining why they did. If you were in my position, you wouldn't have done anything different. Minimizing. But we all do this. For all of us, our knee jerk reaction to feelings of guilt and to pointing fingers of others at us, you did wrong. Our knee jerk is to self justify, to defend ourselves. For many of us, our minds are a constant hum of, reasons why we did what was right and what other people were constantly thinking about what other people are thinking about what we're doing and constantly thinking of reasons of why what we're doing is right. Just We're doing the right thing. And if that person says this, then my response would be this. And I'm doing the right thing. And if that person says that, my response would be that. Okay. We, self-justification is the hum of the, the mind that's feeling blame, guilt. We, we, we love to defend ourselves because we know deep down. I'm not saying, sometimes it is good to give reasons. I'm not, I'm not saying that's all wrong. But I'm saying, if that's the default mode of our hearts, there's something wrong. We know we need redemption, and so we try to self-justify. But at some point, usually late at night for me, In the darkness, the web of self-justification, it wears thin. We start to feel the tinges of guilt. And deep down, we know that we have done wrong things, we have failed, and we should be punished for the bad things that we've done. And I think we are hardwired by God, made in his image, and we know our rebellion The way that we hurt other people, made in the image of God, that it deserves, it requires some sort of payment, and we feel that. Think about it. Y'all feel like others should pay for what they did wrong, especially if it was done towards you, okay? You got to make it right. If you hurt me or so help you, I'll punish you with my tongue or with my hands or by avoiding you. We love to punish each other. This idea that being wrong deserves some sort of payment. We know that. Have you ever had a kid who did something wrong and starts hitting themselves? Why are they doing that? Because they feel guilty and they want to pay for it somehow. I should hurt because I feel guilt. But if we, so if we fail to justify our own sins we can't, the excuses wear thin, then we usually feel like we need to do the second thing. We've got to pay for them somehow to make them right. And if we ever start to feel that we ourselves should pay for what we did wrong, then we usually, okay, I got to make payment for what I did. So we start to think, what sacrifices can I make? I'm, I'm using religious language to talk about things we do every day. All right. I did something bad, so now I need to do something good to make it right. And we make a sacrifice, okay? Maybe we try to do some good things to outweigh the bad things. Parents who feel like they're failures, okay? I felt like a failure, all right? Um, We often can, we buy our kids lots of presents to ease guilt, feel like I've not been there for my kids, so I'll just dump presents on them at Christmas time. That's a sacrifice to redeem me in their eyes for what I've failed to do and be. See, we're hardwired to want to pay for our sins, to make things right, to redeem ourselves in the eyes of others and in the eyes of God. See, I'm a good parent. There's a mountain under the Christmas tree the size of the room. But we all know we're not perfect, right? And yet we want to accomplish our own redemption. But here's the thing. This is a rat race. It's never enough. No matter amount, uh, no matter how much we pay, no matter how much we sacrifice, we're not perfect. We're still sinful. And the good things we do can't pay for a lifetime of disobeying and ignoring God and hurting other people. Doing a lot of good stuff doesn't fix the problem with our hearts and doesn't fix our track record either it's like throwing <clears throat> diamonds on a floor covered with dirt and thinking that that makes the floor clean look at my diamonds god see i'm not so bad after all no the floor's still dirty we owe god perfect obedience he made us we belong to him we failed. And the sooner we admit that, the closer we are to one of two things. Despair? I'll never be good enough. That's it. Or Jesus. When we feel guilt, both from within and without, and all our attempts to self-justify and to pay for our sins still leave us feeling guilty, that's where we find the Lord Jesus. The two Knee-jerk responses of self-justification and self-redemption through sacrifice, they are exactly what Jesus provides for us on the cross by his death and resurrection. We desperately need justification to be seen as righteous in the eyes of God. And we need redemption that comes from outside of us. Because we know that we can't make ourselves righteous, no matter how hard we try No matter how many excuses we make. And we can't pay the price of our sins to redeem ourselves. We can't. Because the price of rejecting God is being rejected by God forever. It would take eternity to pay for all that we've done wrong. No thing you do can make something a lifetime of disobeying God go away. Think about how many times you've done things you knew were wrong. Think about the times you were selfish, terribly so. That you said hurtful things that you wish you could take back to people made in God's image. To people you claim to love even. Think about the lies. Hiding things. Things maybe you're still hiding that those closest to you don't even know about. The impatience the grumbling, the manipulation, and on and on. Sins against people, sins against God, things you didn't do and should have, all of them. Think about them, piled higher and higher, and they all form a, a big debt that you know you can't pay. A pile of guilt that no excuse can cover. We need a redeemer. We need a justifier. Someone to pay for our sins, to make everything right, and then to look at you and say, not guilty, period, I love you. And that leads us to the second point of these two verses. The way of redemption is the blood of Christ. So see that in verse 7? In him, we have redemption through his blood. So we've talked about why we need redemption. We're guilty. We've sinned. And on the cross, Jesus shed his blood to pay the redemption price for our sins. Okay? Blood in the Bible, it symbolizes life. And on the cross, Jesus gave his life. Why do Christians talk about blood all the time? How gross. We're talking about the life of Jesus, a substitutionary life given in our place to cover the payment for the sins of everyone who turns to Jesus for rescue. His sacrifice, we believe, Pays for our sins. As I said a few minutes ago, everyone, we, we intuitively know that a sacrifice is necessary to redeem ourselves from failure. I'll just keep giving illustrations. Let's let's say you know you failed at work really bad. You forgot to do something, and now everyone views you as a failure. You dropped the ball. Major. Okay? And your job maybe hangs by a thread. And you go to your boss and you say, how can I make this right? And he looks back over the train wreck of what you've done and he says, it's going to cost you. You're going to have to show up early and stay late for the rest of your time here to atone for your sins. To redeem yourself as a competent worker in my eyes. Okay? We see this in so many areas of life. We could go on and on. In husband and wife relationships, the wife or the husband, let's say the husband, he usually, drops the ball big time. And he goes to his wife. How am I going to redeem myself in your eyes? Well, you got to make some sacrifices. Hunting, it's got to go. No. <laughs> um, what are you going to sacrifice to redeem yourself? All right, we're hardwired this way. But nothing that we could sacrifice could pay back the debt we owe God. Nothing. The cost of disobeying God is death and separation from Him. And there's no way for us to pay this cost without dying and being separated from God forever. There's no way for us to pay the cost of our rebellion against the creator of our souls apart from death and separation from him. So this is why Jesus came. We need a redeemer and God sent a redeemer. He came to pay our debt and he had to become a man to do this. All right? This is where this all connects with our theme of Jesus becoming a man. Only a man can pay for human sins by dying the human death that we deserve to die on the cross. And so when you see Jesus on the cross, know that is what my sins cost. That is the sacrifice I should have paid, but I don't have to because he died for me. He paid the debt we could only have paid off in hell. And Jesus gave his life for our sins. Now our sins can be forgiven. Which leads to the third thing I want you to see. In verse 7 of Ephesians 1. In Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins. Have you ever been forgiven by someone in a situation where you, there was nothing you could do to make things right? Other than simply say, "I was wrong," please forgive me. In college, Abraham Metellus is this really kind, friendly guy. Okay, big big black guy he had an afro. Just the most—I mean, everybody was his friend. Really nice guy, and he was working on this paper. Okay, on the school computer and it was 2 in the morning, and I needed to go print off. The paper was due at 8, and I needed to go print off my paper and on the same computer. So I went down, and I, I saw him using. it, and I said, Abraham, you mind if I just stick my thumb drive in and minimize your, your uh, document? You probably know where this is going. And, and print my paper, and then just take it back to my room so I can go get some sleep. He said, oh, no problem, dude, no problem. I hit, instead of minimize, I hit the X. And then I hit enter, okay, Which is, do you want to save changes? No. I deleted his paper, his whole paper. Okay, it was gone. And I, I just I looked at him and I, I almost cried. I, I, I'm sorry. I don't know what to say. Can can, can I I help you? He he just looked at me and he said, Oh, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Bro. And then he gave me a hug. I I, I I literally, I hardly slept. I felt terrible. I saw him the next morning in class. "Mm, It went okay, man. I was able to remember most of it. it wasn't a huge paper. It was probably a three or four page paper, but I felt terrible. Listen, he forgave me and there was no way I could write his paper for him. He couldn't submit my paper. He had to absorb the cost of what I did to him. And he did. The covering of sin, in this case a mistake, requires a sacrifice but not yours. In those situations where you have to be forgiven, the person who forgives has to choose whether or not they will bear the cost of what you did or if they'll try to make you pay. Maybe by continuing to bring your sin up and shaming you for it. Remember what you did to me? Yeah, feel bad because it is bad and you are bad and I hate you. Think about a wife who's unfaithful to her husband, and she asks him for forgiveness. If he says, if he believes she's truly repentant, he says, I forgive you, it's done. And he's not going to bring it up again if he truly forgives her. Yeah, there might be a lot of trust issues that have to be worked through, but if he forgives her, then he's not going to make her pay for it over a lifetime of groveling. No, he's going to cover it with his love till death. If you've ever forgiven someone for something big that they've done to you, you know it can be extremely hard to do. It can feel like dying, but it's also extremely freeing. Because no matter what, you know you can't make someone undo what they did. And no matter what, we we cannot pay God back for what we did. He's got to absorb the cost if he's going to forgive us. The damage is done. We have sinned. Forgiveness is our only hope. Just throw out a few more examples. I just want this to be so practical. Think, think for example, about someone who murders another human being, either accidentally or on purpose. Think of a drunk driver whose life is turned upside down by one dumb mistake. Think of a parent who, in a moment of anger, takes their baby. The baby dies. Where do they go for forgiveness? Read the comment section on news feeds for people who've done horrible things. Rage! They should burn! They should pay a thousand hells! I don't know if you've ever done that before. People think there's no chance of forgiveness for them. What about if you are that person? Where do you go with your shame? Where do you go to get your sin covered? To rid yourself of guilt? You can't pay someone back for taking their life. The person's in the grave. No, this person needs forgiveness. A lifelong prison sentence doesn't pay off what a murderer has done. It might be just in the eyes of our society, but they don't earn their forgiveness by paying their sentence. Forgiveness isn't something you can earn. Forgiveness requires grace, free love, someone else in love absorbing the cost of what you've done and covering it. That's what the cross of Jesus is. It's God covering the cost of your sin. The cost is death, and Jesus paid it. All of it. Why? So that sins could be forgiven. Why did the baby come to be born in a manger? He came to forgive you from your sins. We read that right at the beginning of Jesus' birth story. Matthew 1. 20 to 21. I read this to the kids this morning. The angel appears in a dream to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Yahweh saves. That's what his name means, Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation Jesus came to take away sins so now we come to the conclusion and application for this morning it's simple repent of our sins all of us some for the first time maybe or if you're like me for the millionth time and turn to Jesus in faith we have sin. We have guilt before God, whether we feel it or not. We've said things that are wrong that we should be ashamed of. Let's stop making excuses, justifying ourselves, and let's say, God, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And let's stop trying to pay for our sins, thinking that somehow the good things that we've done can outweigh the bad things, or stop trying to pay for your sins by hurting yourself somehow, you can't earn forgiveness. It's a gift. In forgiveness, someone always pays the cost. And in the gospel, God, God offers everyone everywhere a chance to have their sins forgiven. And because of that, we believe the gospel is has the power to take away shame and guilt forever. And then, from a position of being free from sin's burden, we can live for God with joy and hope because of his sacrifice. So that's true for you if you're sitting here and you've never put your faith in Jesus before. If you... Confess your sins to the Lord. Stop making excuses for your sin. He will forgive you forever. If you really mean it. That's the best news that we could ever hear. Jesus, though, his forgiveness is just the beginning. Redemption from sin's penalty is only the start of the Christian life. Jesus also redeems us from sin's power. He frees us from sin's clutches and enables us, by his Spirit's help, to actually be able to live for him, to love people truly, not for wrong motives, but actually because of God's love for us. If you know that you, deep down, are a bad person, And God's love has set you free and has covered everything you've done. That makes you one of the most loving people you could ever imagine. Because you show others love that you have been shown. Forgiveness that you have received. Forgiven people forgive. Experiencing this kind of love and grace will set your life on fire. If you truly, truly grasp it. But like all of us, we need i need to keep going back to this every single day all right the temptation to justify is always there even when i'm right why is that my knee jerk response ultimately what god thinks is the most important thing and you know what he said about me i love you because of jesus For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So let's pray. And if you would, just pray in your hearts asking and thanking God for the forgiveness we have through Jesus. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that we have redemption Through him. That we can hang up our excuses. And we can get off the treadmill of trying to pay for what we've done wrong. And we can experience your love. And your freedom. And your forgiveness through Christ. Father, I pray that you would help our hearts this Christmas season. To remember Jesus, that he came to deal with our sin problem. Father, if any of us doesn't feel like we have a sin problem, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction. If any of us know we do, but are still trying to make it right ourselves, I pray that we would seek your forgiveness confess our sins to you and ask for your forgiveness and I pray Lord that you would bless the rest of our time of worship in Jesus' name amen